Welcome to Mama Talk Talks, A Different Take, a podcast where everyday people around the globe share a different take on everyday issues. I'm your host, Abi Mambo, and I'm pleased you're joining us today. Welcome. Hi, Kaza. Hi, Abi. How are you? Great, great. It's so good to have you. I have not seen you in years. Um, right, right. Where are you right now? Rocky Mountain? Yes, yes. I'm in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. Okay. So I will let you introduce yourself, but I do want to say for everybody listening that you and I, I remember, I think I was trying to put the blurb together for this and I was thinking, I've known you since I was nine. Yeah, about right. <laughs> yeah, right before I went to Lourdes. So I would just, you know, Kaza Chate is a missionary and I will let her do the introduction herself and then we'll get into what her mission is and why I invited her to be on the show today. So Kaza, over to you. All right. Well, Amy, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm really excited to be talking with you today. So my name is Kaza Chate. I live in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. And currently, I work as a missionary to Syria and Iraq. It's, it's something that I enjoy doing very much. And hopefully, we shall talk more about, you know, what I do. And, you know, you guys can learn a little bit about the kind of work that I do, how exciting it is, and all of that good stuff. Tell us more about this exciting work that you're doing in Syria and Iraq. Well, it's exciting, you know, because it's, it's such a joy serving those that in a difficult place than I am right now. And seeing their joy and you know, their perseverance in the midst of the war, in the midst of all the suffering that they've gone through, it's a joy for me because I'm learning from them. I'm learning from them how to persevere. I'm learning from them how to live my faith. I'm learning from them how to be kind, how to be generous, all of those things. That's why, you know, I was like, it's exciting, you know, serving them because going there and getting that infectious joy and that perseverance and all of that is truly an amazing thing to for anyone to experience really so i was really fascinated when i read your story on on the website because i kind of thought first of all i'll let you tell it because that story about spending christmas and the way you open it with this missile coming our way or something like that for those of us who've gotten relatively used to a comfortable living in pretty safe environments, that's a very jarring thing. So can you just talk about that experience? What do you remember about that experience in Syria in, I think it was December of 2017, was it? Right. Okay. Right. right. Yeah. So December 2017, we went to Syria, but before we went over there, it had been, it had taken me at least one year to pray about it and discern if this is what I wanted to do. And let me backtrack a little bit to 2015 when I came to North Carolina. And at that time, 2015 was four years into the Syrian crisis. And I had studied, you know, the Syrian crisis way back when I was doing my doctorate in Florida. So, I mean, academically, I understood what it meant. I had solutions in my head because you studied this on paper, you analyze, <laughs> and then, you know, you propose solutions because, you know, my background was conflict analysis and resolution. So I had all of these ideas. And I come to this parish and our parish is pretty much very engaged and attuned to the suffering of the persecuted Christians in Syria and Iraq, because that is where Christianity spread to the entire world. So they were praying for that, praying for the Christians there that, you know, they'll persevere and all whatnot. 
then it so happened that in 2014, one of our parishioners met this young gentleman, you know, from France and just got to talking. And he said he had founded a nonprofit called SOS Chrétien d'Orient that with the goal of helping Christians remain in the Middle East, because, you know, he saw it as a devastation if Christians, you know, leave from the Middle East. So from that time on, we started praying, you know, for persecuted Christians, you know, throughout you know, in our parish and all whatnot. Then in 2016, we invited Benjamin, that was his name, the co-founder of this nonprofit. We invited him over to our parish because we've been having a series of conferences on persecuted Christians just to raise awareness of what is going on because usually what the media tells us is not really what is going on on the ground. So Benjamin came and he told us about their work, what they do, and it was just incredible seeing the amount of help that they're giving to the persecuted, persecuted Christians over there. Then he said, you know, all of their work, you know, is primarily done by volunteers, volunteers from around the world, mostly French volunteers. Then he just made an off the hand comment, like, you know, up to this point, we've not had any American volunteers. Are there any takers? And <laughs> ever the one full of adventure and, and whatnot, I said, well, I'll go. That was 2016. So at that point, I said, well, I'm going to go. Then I walked over to a friend of mine and I said, would you come with me? And she too, she had been praying that she wants to go. And it was me asking myself like an, an answer to her own prayer. And I said, well, sure. So we will go together. But you to know, we, that's when 2017. <laughs> wow. and, and then we started just praying and just planning. And then uh, finally, December 2017 came around. We took two weeks. We're going to spend about eight days in Syria. And the experience was just amazing. So... Christmas Day, we had gone to Mass, we heard bombs, you know, just dropping, you know, that sort of thing. And we came back home to our host. And just about the son, you know, as is, he, we are about 26 of us in this group, mm -hmm. uh, French volunteers with SOS Chrétien d'Orient. And we, I mean, we had a long day, we had made many visits and, and things like that. And so we came back home so that we could rest a little bit. And Aziz left us home and he said good night. And then he said he's going to go back out because it's Christmas. Yeah. So they're going to go out and, you know, enjoy, you know, that sort of thing. Then, you know, a few minutes later, you see him come back calm, you know, comes in the living room. He said, we have to go to the basement. It's a missile coming our way. I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, yeah, we need to go to the basement. I was like, sure. <laughs> So we went to the basement and, you know, stayed there a few, I think maybe 15 or 20 minutes. Then he, he got it all clear that the missile was actually going to another town. Then we went back upstairs and continued dinner. Like nothing just I, happened. I, I, and, wow. <laughs> I mean, what was going through your, did it register when he said there's a missile <laughs> coming our way? Like, No, no, it did not register. I was like, <laughs> okay, that was quick. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it did not. But at the same time, the strangest thing, I was just full of peace. Like nothing is going to happen to me. I was just full of peace and full of like, everything is under control. So don't worry. Everything's going to be fine. So yeah, it was just the strangest thing. Yeah, that was an experience. <laughs> so Kazef, you mentioned earlier that the media doesn't really tell us the whole story or the maybe doesn't get all the facts or whatever the case might be. So I, I've read about the Syrian crisis from the papers. I have a sense of it, 
some extent from military affiliations. What's your view from having been on the ground at that time in 2017? Because I can tell you, just sitting outside of that, it seems pretty hectic. It seems pretty bad. But how bad? I don't know. I'm going by what I see in the media report. So what is it really like on the ground for people who are living this reality every single day? So, uh, like I mentioned to you, when I started studying, you know, the Syrian crisis, I was way back in school. I mean, I, my study conflict analysis and resolution, so we're always asked to analyze contemporary conflicts and propose solutions for that. So that was sort of like my entryway into that. So from the beginning, the, the Syrian crisis was really about legitimate concerns about the government, you know, normal things that usually happens. Yeah. And it happened around that same time when you had the Arab Springs, you had Tunisian, you know, all of that stuff. Right. But so you had legitimate concerns. People were really concerned about the, the country, the economic realities and stuff like that. But at a certain point, it got hijacked, as you can imagine, with legitimate things any, in any country around the world things get hijacked by people that have other agenda. Yeah. And in the case of Syria, it got hijacked, unfortunately, you know, by terrorists, people that wanted something else. So with that hijack then came all the different elements that you can imagine, you know, the killing of the minorities, not just Christians, but Yazidis and, you know, all of those things. So the reality on the ground was that it, it was really hard, especially you know, for the Christians, because they were forced to either convert or leave the country, which is something mm. that they do not want, mm. to, want to do. So that's what we're faced with. Then additionally, too, one of the things that I mentioned is that sometimes what we get from the media is not usually what is. Yeah. For instance, we hear a lot that, hey, you know, the president of Syria, he's, he's killing Christians and killing the people, he's gassing them. But that is not the reality on the ground. You know, they tell us, especially the ones I've talked to, they're like, Oh my goodness, he's our savior. He's the one protecting us. You wow. know, he's the one defending us. He's the one, what are you guys talking about? Why are you guys spreading lies? So wow. for me, when I went there, that was a shock because I went there, you know, with an open mind. I was like, okay, this is what I'm hearing. Let me go hear from those that are actually living this reality. And when I heard that, I was like, okay, not only one time, not pretty much every Christian that I talked to, yeah. that was their refrain that he is the one helping us, he's the one saving us. So I was like, okay, there's something going on here. That, that is not, yes, yeah. we're not getting yeah. the full story. And that's one of those things, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the talk that Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie gave years ago, TED Talk, I think it was a TEDx talk, I don't remember now, on the danger of a single story mm-hmm. and how one narrative can really paint a picture If you don't have the full story or other versions of that reality, you actually don't know what happened. And this is making me think, when the Syrian crisis started, I heard some of the things that you're talking about, right? The persecution, whatever the president's role was in all of this. Honestly, I wasn't close enough to even know that it had been hijacked by a whole different agenda. So it's very interesting to hear how this bit about storytelling, and I'm very passionate about storytelling. And like I said to you before we started the recording, this is why I'm doing this show, because I really think we need to hear different perspectives. Otherwise, we're just kind of hearing one version of the truth or one version of a story, whether it's the truth or not, we don't even know. That's really interesting to hear that um, from you. Now, I... 
I'm curious. And I'm not going to go into Middle Eastern politics or religion here because we could be on this for months. Right, right. I want to go back to where we started your work as a missionary. So in 2016, I was given the opportunity to move to South Africa to go on a global assignment and do some work there, which was exciting. I'm sitting here hearing you talk and I'm thinking, <laughs> go to Syria or go to Iraq. Now that's a different kind of deal. The way you talk about it in the article is it was a calling. Talk to me more about what that means for people who don't understand. I mean, we both grew up Catholic, so I think I have an understanding, a theoretical understanding of what a calling is. You're living that. So what is a calling? Right, right. So you're right. We can never really dissect what a calling is, but I'll, I'll try to explain what a calling is from my you know, limited understanding. For me, what I define as a calling, especially a calling from God, is something that you uncover through lots of prayer and, and our Lord puts desires in your heart to do a particular thing. Mm-hmm. That, that's what I'll, I'll, I'll call a calling. You have the desire in your heart and, you know, the desire will not go away. Even if you try to explain it away that these are the things that will stop you from doing this particular task or uh, engagement, but the desire is stronger and stronger. And then, you know, it's sort of like, then you start having little breadcrumbs along the way that yeah. you, for you to follow so that to sort of clearing the way for you to be able to do that particular thing. So for me, this, I I believe it was a calling because in 2016, when, you know, Benjamin said, you know, up to this point, we've not had any American come to Syria. I was like, at that point, you know, it was like an adventure for me. You know, I'd been praying for the persecuted Christians until I went there. Then I started talking to people. And I remember one conversation I had on December 26th, you know, 2017 with a guy, he was just telling me, you know, the suffering and the sorrow of the people. And I remember in my head, it was like, you got to do something, Mm -hmm. you know, you got to do something. So, but that's something I did not know what I had to do, but for the next year, it was in my head, I've got to do something. Then little by little, like I said, you know, breadcrumbs along the way, little inspirations to go down and explore what does this mean? for me, uh, for my life, for all of that. And again, the desire keeps growing and becomes stronger and stronger over time. In a nutshell, that's what I will call, you know, a calling. And those little breadcrumbs along the way and the desire in your heart, of course, all of that, you know, uh, enveloped in prayer is what I will call calling. And just so people understand the context of this question, you were not sitting around doing nothing when this calling came, right? Talk to us about what you were doing when this calling came, because I think the context of it is so important in kind of framing why for you this was more than just something that you thought was coming from yourself. So what were you doing in 2016 when you went to church and heard that message? Right, right. So I had been, I was hired to work at a large university in North Carolina. I was actually hired to establish a program, conflict resolution program at a very large university. And I really enjoyed what I was doing because it was professionally satisfying because I love helping people, help them resolve their conflicts. Mm -hmm. So I've been doing that. I established a program 
I did everything for the program. It was a one person show pretty much. Yeah. So it was very, very satisfying. So when I went to Syria in, in 2017 and, and then I had this conversation with this guy, um, summer 26, 2017, telling me, you know, all the sorrows and sufferings that, you know, they've gone through. And I said, gotta do something. Of course, I was like, what can I do? I have this job that I love very much. <laughs> it pays good money. So what do you, yes. you know, what should I do about it? So that's why it took me like quite a while, almost one year to sort things out, to see if this is just me with something bigger than me uh, being asked of me. So there was a lot of prayer throughout that year. Then in the end, so when I finally decided that I was going to go back in December 2018, there was one little problem. Okay, because I was still working, I, I intended to work. Was there just um, one or, little problem? It sounds like there were many things to work out. <laughs> yeah, 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 there were many problems along the way. But the immediate one was that um, um, I had this issue of, okay, when do I take off work? Because the previous year, Benjamin at SOS Christian Dorian, they had given me some kind of a dispensation because normally when a volunteer goes to Syria or Iraq or any of their five missions, uh, the minimum is usually one month that it require you to commit. So we had explained to him that, okay, we really don't have that much time. Yeah. You know, we have just about eight days to give y'all and help, you know, that <laughs> sort of thing. So he was like, okay, that's fine. Come on. Anyway, we want you to come and experience what the Syrians are experiencing so that you can go back and tell the world and tell the American population, you know, what is going on here. So it was really a dispensation, you know, to both of us. So I knew that the next time when I was going to go, I needed to give a minimum of one month. So I asked my supervisor, I, I knew that December was a very low period so to speak, at my university, because the university closes for like two weeks. Yep. So yeah. I was like, okay, I'm going to append two extra weeks, no big deal. One week before the start of the two-week period, and then one week after, and maybe one month. So I knew that was a really brilliant plan that my supervisor would <laughs> not say no to, because I'm like, hello, the university is closed. Like, there's no one there for two weeks and there's nothing wrong with two extra weeks because I've taken two weeks before. So I was so confident that she was going to say yes, that I did not see the answer coming. So I go in, I make my request and I gave her the context of my request because the year before when I was leaving, I didn't tell them that I was going to Syria because I just went because it was during the time when the university was closed. So I did not need any extended it's, period of yeah. time. So I gave her the background. I said, you know, I'd gone by the way I'd gone last year. So it was so moving that I want to go back for one extra month, yada, yada. So she said she will have to talk to the provost about that. Given my role at the university, it's not something that she can answer back. I was a little bit surprised by that. I was like, okay, I talked to the provost, you know, yeah. what, you know, that sort of thing. Then in the end, I think about a week or so, I was like, why is this thing? So why do you have to talk to the provost about that? But let me backtrack a little bit. Well, I guess the reason why she had to talk to the provost, like I said, I was a one-person department. Yeah. I was the one providing a conflict resolution services to faculty and staff, about 6,000 people at the university. Yeah. So 
that was her concern yeah if much. something happened to you in syria then what happens to the program and succession planning exactly. and blah blah yeah. exactly okay so but i did not see that as a problem because i've taken two weeks off before you know that sort of thing so anyway about a week later she comes back and she says you know she talks to the provost and she says, based on my position here at the university, uh, unfortunately, they cannot grant me the one month request. I was so devastated. I was like, really? Really? So anyway, so there was a whole episode in her office. I, I don't want to recount. But anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> in the end, I took it to pray and then came back. I was like, I feel so strongly about this. This is something that I have to do. This is something that I have to do. And in the end, what I felt strongly I needed to do was to resign from my position and, you know, answer this call. Oh, wow. So it was at yeah. that point that you resigned? Yeah, it was at that point that I resigned. Wow. I'm the kind of person I can take risk, but my risks are calculated risks, right? <laughs> I have to make sure I have x amount in the bank to make sure i can pay bills for x period of time so i hear something like that and i think really so i talk to a lot of people who are more on the corporate side and want to quit their jobs and they run into the same thing every time they feel called to do something bigger they're inspired to start a business a non-profit what have you and we all run into the same kind of challenge right which is the golden cuffs and you're sitting there going, okay, so, well, but if I leave, who's going to pay my bills? What if this new thing doesn't pan out? And so the question is always, how do you know you're ready to take the leap? <laughs> so how did you know? Yeah, so, Amy, this is where maybe I have to talk again about religion a little bit. <laughs> it's one of those things you don't actually know until, you know, you're in there. So uh, when, when I told my supervisor, I think that was August when I told her. Then she said, no, it's not going to happen. So it took me from August to about October before I finally decided that this is what I have to do. I submitted my resignation in October. But my one month, I gave them a one month you know, resignation. And that came as a total shock to her. She did not see it coming. Because, I wouldn't have seen I mean, it coming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was pretty much independent. I was making good money. I was on point to getting promoted, you know, and which means extra money and, you know, that sort of thing. And she was in shock, you know, she did not even read the letter. She just held on to it and said, I respect your decision. I understand it's a higher calling. I respect it, but I'm still very sad that, you know, you want to leave us. Um, in my case, I will not say it was really me that gave me that courage and that grace. It was really from God because I'm like you, I plan every last detail of my life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But some, in this particular instance, I just just left trusting God that the God that called me and put this desire in my he's not going to abandon me. And uh, sorry, he's been taking care of me. He has three people that offered that when I come back, you know, I could stay with them. And it's just been one blessing after the other. Of course, that's not to say that I'm not worried about so many things, yeah. you know. Yeah. I am. But... I want to hang on to the God that I am serving. I know he's an awesome God and he's very generous. And there's this saying that they always say that, you know, God is never outdone in generosity. So I'm banking on that. <laughs> so that's what keeps me going. That's what made me to take that leap, that blind faith. 
because I had to cash out on my retirement and I lost a lot of money because I was not yet fully vested in my university. Yeah. Need five years to invest it. And I had only worked there for three years and 40 days. So I lost what, you know, was to come to me. And the little that I had saved put in that retirement, I spent it, you know, in the first year. And so I was completely out. <laughs> I like how even in the article you talk about the fact that you'd been working there for three, three years and 40 days. That's real specific. And Kaza, you touched on the religion question, so I'm, I'm going to go there for a little bit. Because how do you how do you explain, if there's a way to, this idea that this calling was was from God? I mean, I've heard people talk about this very strong feeling or sense, or whatever it is, to go do something. And they've just dropped everything and gone. And they've not described it in the context of a calling from God. So... For people for whom this is not, I will be transparent that I don't fully understand it. How do you explain that? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Amy, it's a mystery. You know, I don't fully understand it myself, but you know, (laughs) but it's one of those things that, like I said, one of my prayers, you know, during this time was that if this is something from God, you know, if God has put this desire in my heart, let him open all the doors. If Mm -hmm. it's not from him, let him take the desire away. Because I definitely don't want to do something that, you know, is for selfish reasons. Granted, there's nothing wrong to, to do things, you know, for selfish reasons. People do things for selfish reasons. But I wanted to do it for others, not really for me. So my prayer was, if this is not from God, take the desire away. If it's from you, then open the doors and, you know, put the, the breadcrumbs. So that is what I would say that, you know, it's a mystery. I'm still, it's like, peeling the onions, you know, the different layers of that, trying to understand what this all means, because in dealing with the supernatural things that are outside of ourselves, we can never really comprehend all of the mysteries of the things that are outside ourselves. Yeah. We can understand what we can understand. And what I understand is there's a design in my heart and that if I don't fulfill it, then there'll be something missing in my life. And if I'm doing it, which I'm doing it right now, there's a joy that comes with it, mm. you know, that is inexplicable. Mm. There's a joy and there's a peace that comes with it that you know, is inexplicable. In the midst of challenges, I'm still very joyful. Yeah. In the midst of knowing that I don't know where my next car note is going to come from, I'm still like, everything's going to work out. So it's something that is outside of myself. But there's that peace and that joy that accompanies, you know, every decision that I make. That's what I'll, I'll, I'll sum it up. So how do you live with that? And what I mean by that is, you know, we are, and, and again, I'll put myself in there. I have come to a place where I have to know what's happening next. Or at least if I don't know what's happening next, I have to plan for all the contingencies. So this whole idea of, at the back of my mind, I know it's all futile, right? Because anything can happen today and poof, it's gone, right? So, I mean, I look at what happened just recently with the Kobe Bryant accident and all those people who just perished on their way to a basketball game. And, you know, right now I'm sitting in, you know, I'm in Singapore and one of the things that's happening here, the coronavirus, right? And I was reading up on that and it sent me back to read up on SARS and how, you know, you go to a hospital, somebody sneezes, and next thing you know, you're sick and dying. So I understand theoretically, right, that nothing is promised. 
However, this whole idea that you just kind of actually, and I think it's, a, it's an act of courage to actually just say, you know what? I'm going to put down the paycheck. I'm going to give up the healthcare benefits. I'm going to give up the 401k and I'm going to go out and I don't know where my next meal is coming from, but I'm going to do this anyway. That is huge. So help me understand that. And partly I ask this for selfish reasons because, you know, I'm one of those people who's sitting around thinking, okay, what's my next step? What is the, what's the big plan for my life? And always I'll come back to, okay, but you got to have a plan, girl. You, you can't just running around <laughs> without a plan. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, Amy, it's it's a mystery to me too because it's still unfolding in my life right yeah. now. And uh, like you too, I always like to plan every detail, but there's a certain point where, you know, we can only plan so much mm. and, and leave the rest, you know, to God. And, you know, that's the point where I am at right now. It's like, I need to abandon totally, you know. I, I guess it's, as we say in, in the spiritual life, it's his grace, you know, it's his grace that has given me that ability to be able to trust and abandon myself, mm-hmm. uh, to let go of, you know, my planning, let go of what I know to be the reasonable thing to do at this point in my life, um, in terms of, you know, paycheck, in terms of, you know, career plans, in terms of all of that, because, you know, the, the way I see is, you know, it, it's about time for me to start, you know, doing something not for me, but for others and serving a higher purpose, which, you know, in my case, you know, I, I believe it's God. So all of that, it's a mystery for me. I'm still trying to live out all of that. Yeah. And yeah. really a lot of, a lot of uh, abandonment. I guess there's this lady, there's none actually, there's one saying that sometimes I go back to just sort of keep me focused on where I am. And Mother Angelica, she is the founder of EWTN, one of the, the largest Catholic television network in the world. Yeah. She, she would say that unless you're willing to do the ridiculous, God will not do the miraculous. So I guess right now I'm doing the ridiculous and I'm waiting on God to do the miraculous in my life. And so far he's keeping his promises and so far uh, I'm going every day. <laughs> I mean, that's very fascinating. Now, going back to your work in both countries, what exactly do you do when you're underground? Mm-hmm. Okay. So when I went with, uh, with SOS Chrétien d'Orient, they have a very good system to help the Christians over there. And since it's a Christian organization, prayer is very important. You know, before we went start our day, we start our day with prayer. Mm-hmm. And all the volunteers have to agree to that. Even if you're not a believer, it's okay. But you know, we have to pray every morning before we go out. So prayer in the morning then, and, and it's also very structured in the sense that, let's say in Syria, there's the head of the mission, the one one person that has that oversees all the volunteers and all other workers there. Okay. Then underneath the head of the mission, you have the deputy head of the mission in the different cities. Then after the deputy head of the mission, they have someone in the particular house where the volunteers are living who serves as the house manager. So that person is in charge of us. So that's the person that coordinates all the projects and all of you know, sort of like following up on what has to be done when and where. So in the morning when we wake up and we say our prayers, people can wake up at any time, but we say prayers at a set time every day. The house manager will just then go down the list of what has to be done on a particular day. 
So let's say if we have to go visit orphans and play with orphans, then we'll do that. If we have to go to a construction site and rebuild some homes, then we'll do that. If we have to go visit the elderly, we'll do that. If there's an engagement in town, let's say at a museum or something like that, we'll go do that. So, or if we have to make food donations or evaluations, you know, all of that. So there are various things that we could do, you know, throughout the day. If we have to teach, you know, French or English, We'll go do that. So each day had its own thing that we that we had to do. Then Sundays, you know, where the days days off. Yep. Even though we're in a Muslim country, and you know, Sunday is not a, a holy day, so to speak. But as a Christian organization, Sunday was a day of rest. All we had to do just relax, but we all had to go to church, you know, on that Sunday. So the activities, the things that we did from day to day, you know, really varied, you know. And sometimes too, we had time where uh, all the volunteers across Syria will meet together for, let's say, a weekend of cohesion, just to hour and hour, so to speak, you yeah. know, and relax, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. And also go visit some of the historic sites, just have some downtime, because the work is really intense. I can uh, there imagine. There's sometimes that will come back home and I'll be so tired, I'll be like, oh, I'm really tired, I'm exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And how do you deal with, I'm just assuming, there is a lot of heaviness that can come with work like this. I remember when I first read Khaled Hosseini's The Kite Runner um, mm-hmm. and just what it was like to live in a war zone and, and other books like that. And just reading a book, I felt the weight of it. And for me in particular, it was about the children, right, who are caught in these war zones. There's also my good friend Uem Akpan's book, Say You're One of Them, which talks about, it's a collection of short stories uh, about Mm -hmm. children caught in war zones. And I think that book sat with me for a long, long time. And and that one, I I believe, was um, the 2009 Pick for Oprah's Book Club. And I remember when she was talking about it, she just said, you know, she just sat with it and it was so heavy. And that's how I always feel when I read about children in war-torn countries. But that's reading it. When you're there and you're witnessing how they live and how they navigate and you know how you grew up right in a really safe place when boarding school run by irish nuns and then nigerian nuns and the worst thing that could happen to us was people showing up and saying you know during one of these political crises and sending us home but we had a sense of security there that i cannot imagine what that's like for children growing up in the war zone so how do you deal with that mm-hmm. yeah maybe it it is hard. I remember I spent most of my time for well, three and a half months in a city called Homs. Homs is the third largest city in Syria, and over sixty percent of Homs was destroyed. Mm. You know, so I remember the first time I walked through one of the the towns. It's really a ghost town. Yeah, and there was it was just devastating you know just seeing the building then imagining the lives that were lost there yeah it was just it's something that i can never get used to seeing yeah and then you know meeting the children the orphans you know or meeting children there's one phenomenon now in syria that the syrians don't talk much about it it's it's called sayara the street children mm-hmm. that was one of the hardest experiences that i had yeah with the street children these are children that you know have escaped from different parts of Syria and they've congregated in one area. They're now involved in a life of crime. They don't have homes. They sleep in one of the destroyed buildings. 
And there's an organization this year that tries to bring them together and tries to offer them an education because this war has been going on for nine years. So imagine that some children who are 16 now, that wow. eight years of, of war, they've not been to school. It's imagine been that trying young, to teach. Yes, wow. imagine teaching more of these children. So experiencing that with these particular children was very, very tough for me. And how do I deal with that? I, I remember when, when I'm standing, you know, in the midst of the children, when we, we were involved with, with an activity with this group, Osaya, you know, I, I would stay back a little bit. Then I would just say a prayer. I would just ask God that, God, why? Why the children? These are innocent children. Why put them through this? Why? Yeah. But then, you know, I'll be like, my presence, it's one way of helping them somehow by helping, you know, the Syrians while helping them, by showing them that, you know, we in the West would not abandon them. It's one way of, you know, helping them as well. And so besides praying during the moment, you know, for these children, when I go back to, you know, at home and after the work day and after dinner, that sort of thing, I usually also find time for prayer just so that I can process some of these things. And I also keep a journal you know, write down, you know, what I sensed, what mm-hmm. I was feeling and all of that. So that someday I want to share that with the rest of the world that, hey, this is how life is. Yeah. You know, yeah. In, in this particular country. And this is the suffering of the children there. So those are some of the two ways that, you know, I process, you know, all of that. What would you tell this audience about Syria and Iraq? I, and I'm going back to what you said earlier about not having the whole story, not having the, the whole truth um, from the media. What is one really, one or two really critical things that you would want us to understand about the, the Syrian crisis or the, the Iraq crisis? Mm-hmm. One thing I would say is, you know, first, you know, pray for them, you know, mm-hmm. and, and secondly, understand that, you know, that always two sides, you know, to a story, or maybe three sides, who knows, his side, her side, and the truth, yeah. you know, whatever the case might be. So there are many sides, you know, to the Syrian crisis. But also to tell the audience, I, want, I would like the audience to know that um, these are people that, you know, uh, they need our support. They need to know that we care about them. They need us to be able to investigate as, as much as we can to know them, to know their stories so that we can tell their story to the rest of the world that, hey, there are people here, there are people that are going through suffering, but at the same time, there are people that, you know, they want us to know what, that they are normal people, that people that, that are joyful, yep. uh, that are welcoming, yep. that are full of love all of that they want us to know all of that and they'll also want us to come visit your country yeah. to see for ourselves yeah what is what is going on there i I'll also add one other thing you know i i have a friend of mine over there in syria who, who works with um, a travel agency right now she said that um before the war people who were coming to syria they were just coming to see the historical places like the crack the chevalier yeah. or go to damascus and see where saint paul walked but now the people that are coming, it's like, no, I'm not interested in Krakashiv Valley. I'm not interested in, in West St. Paul Walk. I'm interested in seeing the ruins. You know, I'm interested in seeing how the country is rebuilding after the war. I mean, my goodness, so. the fact that it's being called the ruins, just that alone just kind of caught my breath, right? The ruins. When we talk about the ruins, I'm thinking about 
the ancient ruins in Greece, the ancient ruins in Rome. I'm not thinking ruins in Syria as of nine years ago. That is powerful. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And we as volunteers, that's how we, we called it too, because it was really the ruins. Volunteers and I will sometimes say, okay, Alon Valley ruin, let's go see the ruins. And it will just be like, you feel so ashamed even calling it that. Yeah, yeah. But that is what it is. Because I remember, you know, going there several times, I'll be like, wow, this will take years to rebuild. Yeah. It will take years to rebuild. Yeah. And because you just say, you just get discouraged, like, oh my goodness, when are they ever going to rebuild all of this? Like I said, 60% of the, the town was destroyed. You know, like, when are they ever going to rebuild it? So it's it's really um, it's a sad sight. But, you know, what, what I would like the audience to know is that, hey, first, pray for the Syrians. Then secondly, investigate, find out, you know, from alternative sources, yeah. you know, what is going on, and also spread the word about them and support them too, because they want to stay. A lot of them want to stay. That's one misconception that, you know, we're being told in the media, oh, they want to come here. No, the ones I talk to is like, no, we want to stay. This is our land. Where are we going to go to? So they want to stay. So support organizations that want them to stay, that help, that help them to stay, like SOS Christian Dorian, Aid to the Church Need, and all of that. So, yeah. Okay. Well, I've kept you for long enough, but before we go, for people who are listening, how can we support you? I know that you are raising funds for your next trip and the trips after that. So people who are interested in supporting you in your missionary work, but also to, in any way, people who want to support different causes in Syria, how can they help? Okay. So for any member of your audience that wants to support me, you can go to my website. It's called myvocationislove.com. That's all one word, myvocationislove.com. Read a little bit more about, you know, what I do. It's just a summary of some of the things that I've done the last, what, a year and a half. And, you know, there's a a button there that you can make a donation. And I really, truly appreciate it. But above all, I will ask for your audience to pray for me that I, I remain faithful to my mission. Then also, there are some other organizations that you can also help. There's Aid to the Church in Need. Uh, you can just Google that, and I think it will be the first one that comes up. Then also support the organization that I volunteer with in Syria. It's called SOS Chrétien d'Orient. You know, Google that, and that will be the first to come. Then also, another organization, which happens to be the one I found, it's called thecrusadeoflove.org. You can go there, too, and learn a little bit more about what the organization is all about and also if you are inclined to donate you can also donate there so it's one word it's called the crusade of love.org and learn about what we're doing and also you know the work that we're doing and what, what we plan to do Kaza, how have we been talking for this whole time and it's at the end that you're mentioning your own organization <laughs> Now I'm thinking we could have talked a great deal about that. So what does your organization do? All right. So again, it's one of those things that it's a fruit of, you know, a year and a half of prayer. You know, I remember I talked to you about my conversation in December 16, 2017. Sorry, December 26, 2017, when I was talking to that guy and I said, you know, you have to do something, you know, well, the something was not just going back to Syria, but it was something more concrete. 
And that over the last year, that has been morphing and, you know, unveiling itself that, you know, I needed to do something more specific, different from what other organizations are doing, but all part of the same umbrella in terms of helping Christians and things like that. So my nonprofit called the Crusade of Love, it's about helping families you know, specifically, mm-hmm. helping them rebuild their lives and find their lives and also helping children, because like I mentioned, that children in Syria who have spent eight years without education. So one of the things that we do is, or we're planning to do, is to support children, uh, help them go to school. We want to also support widows and widowers. We also want to help the men because a lot of young men uh, in Syria don't have jobs. So we want to do skill programs, you know, that sort of thing. All of that is on the website. And it's still, again, it's, it's one of those things that this is still a new nonprofit. Yeah. And this, this next upcoming mission is actually a mission on behalf of the Crusade of Love. And uh, we're raising funds for that particular mission. So there's all of that, you know, on the website and, you know, all of that good stuff. So Kaza is a missionary. She holds a doctorate in conflict resolution, you said. Uh-huh. And now you also have founder. <laughs> you're you're a very busy woman, which of course this this is very true to type. And one of the things that I will say to everyone listening is, I will say this anywhere, any day. You are one of the most candid, honest, honorable people I have ever known. And like I said at the beginning of this session, I've known you since I was nine. And I don't know if you remember this, but when I started Lord, you, you were supposed to be my, my big and you were. And so I've known you in that life for a long time. So none of this actually surprises me about you. I think it's very, very much in line with your character and the person that you were all those years ago in Lord's when, you know, you were 13 and I was nine and all that. But Kaza, really, really thank you so much for coming on the show and for educating all of us. And for educating me, I like to think that I read a lot and I know what's going on, but I kind of really don't always know what's going on. So thanks for educating us. Thanks for being on the show. And I will make sure that your organization, as well as the other organization that you were working with from the beginning, are put on the website so people know where to find information about you, your work, and most importantly, how to support you financially to continue doing the work that you're doing on behalf of the persecuted people in Syria and Iraq. Thank you so much for having me. It was really a joy being here. And, you know, thank you for the kind words. And um, yeah, so I hope we can do this again sometime. Absolutely. I would like to hear how things progress. And by the way, you look, when you're talking about joy coming from within the work that you're doing, you look like you're just glowing and i know the audience can't see you but you've got she so kaza has got like a is it it a rose this red flower in her hair she's got this glow going and yeah so if that's what fulfilling work looks like i love it i should get some of that all right all right thank you thank you so much absolutely thanks kaza all right bye-bye bye-bye i hope you enjoyed today's show Please share your thoughts in the comments section or by emailing ab at mamatalktalk.com. Continue the conversation in your homes and communities. And when you join us next week, invite a friend or many. For more diverse perspectives on everyday issues from everyday people around the globe, subscribe to our podcast at mamatalktalk.com 
forward slash a different take and join our online community by following us on Twitter and Instagram. Until we meet again, I'm your host, A.B. Mambo, Sigashina, stay well.